Good evening, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24? Thank you, Bert, as always, do a great job. And uh, tonight we're going to continue our study, the 10th hour in the, do- the uh, doctrine of the day of the Lord. And uh, tonight we'll be looking at uh, Daniel 9, 27, uh, where, which teaches us that the Antichrist is going to desecrate the future temple that will be erected uh, after the rapture of the church. And he'll do this by deifying himself. So this is a very, it's a fascinating chapter, uh, passage. So we'll be at Daniel 9.27. This will be our last um, for a while in Daniel 9.27. We're going to move on after this class. Next week we'll start looking at Daniel 11.36 to 45, which talks about, describes some for, more for us the actions uh, of the Antichrist and his, his, uh, during the 70th week and also his character. So that's a, that's a really cool passage. So we'll be tra- tracking his, his military movements uh, in, the, in that, and also it's a great description of who this person is going to be, the Antichrist, uh, the, uh, the ruler of the final stage of the Roman Empire, Roman dictator. So tonight again, we'll be looking at Daniel 9.27, which teaches us the Antichrist will desecrate the temple by deifying himself. And this is going to take us to, um, you know, we're talking about the abominations that are mentioned in Daniel 9.27 is two. And then in the NIV, there's only, it's the word abominations in singular. But in the Hebrew, it's, it's, in, it's in the plural. And a lot of modern translations bring this out. I don't know why the, um, the, the uh, NIV didn't uh, make it plural. But uh, so what we'll see tonight is we've taken us, it's, this passage is going to take us, uh, the fact that the Antichrist uh, deifying himself and desecrating the temple uh, it's going to take us to Matthew 24, and there's a passage where the Lord quotes da- this passage in Daniel uh, 9.27. So we'll be there, and there's a little more information there. We'll probably be in Second Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul talks about the Antichrist uh, deifying himself, sitting down in the rebuilt temple. In, in fact, he'll be sitting in between the, the, the cherubim uh, and uh, on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So I was talking to Ray, had some questions about it, and of course, uh, you know, there's a lot of people saying, if you read some stuff on prophecy, this week, oh, the, the Ark of the Covenant's probably in Ethiopia. I don't know where the, the latest uh, thing is. It doesn't really matter because we have the, the plans to rebuild, rebuild the tabernacle. It's in the book of Exodus. So when we do the book of Exodus, all they have to do, the Jews, probably the Jews have already got it built anyways. It's not publicizing it. But there's all kinds of plans ready. They're waiting, the Orthodox Jews in Israel, they're, they're waiting to, uh, for the Messiah to come back. So they got to rebuild that temple, and they're going to build it on that spot where uh, Herod's was, Solomon's, and there's a rubble temple we studied, which is the Dome of the Rock is there now, so they can't do it right now. So it's going to be interesting how that's going to play out. So anyways, the interesting class that we got planned here tonight. So uh, without uh, further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. We take this moment of silent prayer, to, and this I know many of you are here all the time, but there's people who listen to our podcast you go on our website so you know what I'm going to say. They, they don't know what I'm going to say, which is very important. So got new people pop in to our websites all the time and, and whatnot. So we take a moment of silent prayer as children of God, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father... Uh, he, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. So uh, we do this before every class. So then once we're in, back in fellowship with God, uh, all we have to do is maintain that fellowship, and we do that by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18. 
to be filled with the Spirit in Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So a good way to describe it in my some of my articles I've, I've written on it about fellowship and, and this whole thing we just talked about is that I'm in the Winstrom family and uh, I'm, I'm a ch- child, I'm a Winstrom child and I'll never be disowned by my parents, although my parents, many times I think, wanted to disown me by some of my things I did. But, uh, so, but I'm always going to be a Winstrom. So what, the problem is when I didn't do what they told me to do, you know, mow the lawn, paint the garage, or whatever else I was supposed to do, and, and didn't do. Well, I, I lost fellowship with them. I'm still their kid, and uh, when I was real young, you, you didn't you didn't eat. So what I had to do is confess that I owned up to it, apologize, and then go out and do what they told me to do. And so then I was able to have dinner. Other than that, other, otherwise, I'd be in my bedroom and it'd be not eating again till the following morning. Maybe we'll see. But uh, anyway, so that's kind of a good analogy, I think. So hopefully that, if you, get, if you can tweak it for me, fine. If you think it's pretty good, then good, we'll keep it. All right, so with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us, another blessing, another day to be on this earth and to enjoy and experience creation and also to uh, experience fellowship with you, your Son, the Holy Spirit, and uh, other uh, members of the body of Christ that are assembled here today. I thank you for each and every person uh, in the chapel. I thank you for this chapel to meet in, and I just thank you for the people you've raised up in this geographical location that have positive volitions of the Word of God that are serious students of the Word of God and they want to grow in their relationship to you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit and to grow up to become like your Son, Jesus Christ, which you've taught us is your plan for our lives. And I just, uh, again, so I thank you for them and uh, those who might be joining us uh, at, a, uh, at a later date through the podcast and uh, the websites that we have. And uh, I just pray, Father, tonight that uh, you will help each person in the audience by this power of the Spirit to learn, understand, and to carefully consider what uh, we're going to be noting here this evening with regards to the Antichrist and his actions uh, during the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, and uh, and also to not only, uh, to learn and understand and apply uh, accurately what we're being taught and that uh, we'd understand the implications of this and how we should live in light of these things that are about to hit this earth. And we thank you for the fact that we're delivered from the wrath to come that you're going to pour out upon this Christ-rejecting world uh, after the rapture of the resurrection of the church. And so we just thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. And of course, Father, I just pray that uh, this lesson would help us, motivate us to live godly lives now and also to evangelize those who might not yet be Christians in our periphery. I also pray, Father, that you would help me uh, to be your instrument. And uh, I thank you for the great honor and privilege that you've given me to teach your word and to uh, provide for your people the necessary spiritual nourishment, the people that you purchased with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, at Calvary 2,000 years ago. 
So I take this very seriously. So help me to bring forth your full counsel tonight by the power of the Spirit, with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so that your people could receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, because your word taught us that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So I just pray for this uh, lesson in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. We'll get there momentarily. And uh, quickly by way of review, it's always good to review. If you've been, uh, as, as you had me as your pastor for about a year and a half, I like to review certain things. I, I, knew, I know too well that we, do, I know for myself, uh, that uh, I have to, I, to get something and to get it inculcated, uh, I have to have repetition. It's always good to repeat too. And I've been taught that the good teacher uh, does repeat. I mean, they do this in sports. Repetition is a good thing. And uh, so much so that you should be able to teach others what we've been teaching here at a certain point, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 5. But to quickly, by way of review, this passage that we're studying tonight, Daniel 9.27, is a part of what we call the 70 weeks prophecy. The 70 weeks of Daniel, you'll hear it taught. It's found in Daniel 9.24 through 27. Now, in this prophecy, a week is not a literal week. It's, uh, it's actually uh, speaks of seven years, uh, a week in this prophecy is seven years, and there's 70 of these, so there's actually 490 of these weeks. They're prophetic weeks, and they deal with the prophetic outline of the future of Israel. And uh, we see that 69 of these weeks, which is equivalent to 483 of these years, have been fulfilled literally in history. And then we see after that 69th week has been fulfilled with Christ's triumphal entry, and this, the 70 weeks prophecy began with, the, as we pointed out, with the decree of Artaxerxes Longamanus in 444 BC, who was the Persian ruler. We saw that this was uh, found, uh, this particular decree is found in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 2. So it, at the 69th week ended with Jesus Christ presenting himself to the Jewish people as their Messiah, and he wept over the city. Uh, a lot of people like to call it the triumphal entry, but I call it the tearful one because he knew the majority of the people in Israel were going to reject him as Messiah, and that's exactly what happened, of course. So after that 69th week, we had uh, Daniel 9.26 uh, talks about three prophetic events that followed that, that precedes the 70th week. Now, we saw that Daniel 9.25 uh, presents the uh, what will take place during the first 69 weeks, and then uh, after that, verse 26 talks about the three prophetic events that follow that 69th week, which were the, the crucifixion of Jesus and also the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, in 70 AD by the Romans. So we could say everything from Daniel 9, 25 and 26 has been fulfilled literally. Now, verse 24, as we pointed out, gives us the sixfold purpose for this 70 weeks prophecy. And uh, we saw that it's uh, to basically co to uh, complete the uh, corporate sin in the nation of Israel. The reason why the, the nation of Israel has been persecuted for many years uh, and centuries now is because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Prior to that, they rejected him as well, and they were disciplined by God. And uh, to whom much is given, much is required. The, Ju the Ju Jews have suffered more than any other Gentile people on the face of the earth because of what God has given to them. So, uh, which Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So they were given the Old Testament scriptures, the Bible is a Jewish book. They were given the tabernacle worship, the temple, the uh, promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and, and, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the New Covenant. Uh, those were uh, unconditional promises that guarantee the future of the nation of Israel, all given to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. 
And so uh, as Gentiles here in the church age, we benefit from the, the Jewish people. And of course, the Messiah is a Jew. And so when we as church age believers believed in Jesus Christ, and when we do Ephesians, we'll see this, chapter two and three of Ephesians, Paul teaches us that Gentile church age believers now, like you and I, are now united to Jewish believers because of our faith in Jesus at justification. And simultaneously at that point, we were united with Jesus Christ and identified with him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father, just like the Jewish believers are in the church age. We call those Messianic Jews today. So we know today, for centuries, the Gentile wing of the church is much larger than the Jewish wing. So we are now, uh, we're a very unique group of Gentiles in history because we're on equal footing with Jewish believers. This never happened prior to the church age. And uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3, 6, that we're co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and also uh, co-partakers of the messianic promise because of our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So uh, prior to the church age, we're talking about uh, these, this uh, Israel has been under discipline and they continue to be under discipline and their discipline will be completed when the church comes back with Jesus at his second advent, which ends the 70th week of Daniel and what we call the times of the Gentiles, which runs coterminous with this 70 weeks prophecy. So we're now waiting for the 70th week to begin, but it cannot begin until the church is removed at the rapture. And if we get enough time, we'll uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll definitely be studying it in this Day of the Lord series. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a book we're going to do, because after we do Habakkuk on Sundays, we're going to do 1 Thessalonians and then right after that, 2 Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that the, uh, the restrainer, who actually is the Holy Spirit who indwells each member of the church uh, bodily, okay? When he's removed at the rapture, then the Antichrist can be manifested. So the, the Spirit working through the members of the body of Christ today, we're the salt of the earth, right? Jesus said, we're restraining evil. He's doing it through us. And then when the church, which is localized, uh, the Spirit is localized in a body of believers today, when we're removed at the rapture, he's no longer localized in a body of believers like he is now. He's still omnipresent, and he'll help people who are unsaved on the earth after we're gone to understand the gospel. But uh, we see that once we're gone, then Paul says the Antichrist can manifest himself, the man of lawlessness. And there's many titles for the Antichrist. As we've been pointing out, he's going to be a Roman person. He's going to be Roman Gentile. He's going to be the final stage. He's going to come from the final stage of the Roman Empire. Uh, he is uh, the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, and that little horn is on uh, the fourth beast, and all commentators, pretty much, not every single one of them, but the great, vast majority throughout the centuries believe that that's speaking of Rome. And uh, we see that uh, Rome, ha uh, that final stage of the Roman Empire, is depicted with the ten horns and the little horn on that fourth beast. And we see that those ten horns are speaking of a 10-nation European confederacy. We know it's European because Rome came, uh, uh, the Roman Empire came out of Europe and it started in Italy. We know that, okay? So, and then it became a vast world empire for, for a thousand years. So we know from Daniel 9, 27 and 26 that he will, the Antichrist will come from the Roman people because, as it says in Daniel 9, 26, uh, the, the, he will come, the ruler who's going to make a firm covenant with Israel in Daniel 9, 27 in the future, comes from the people that destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And that was, in, history tells us, 
is the Romans. So we saw the 70th week, if you look up at this chart on the board, the Antichrist, once we're gone, the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel, as we'll see in Daniel 9, 27. We'll continue to talk about it. And then he breaks the treaty, three and a half years into it. And we pointed out it's, this uh, seven years is according to the Jewish reckoning of time, a 360-day calendar. And so three and a half years into it, 1,260 days or 42 months, or as Daniel 7.21 says, time, times, and a half time, which is a time is a, is a year, times two years, half time, three and a half years. Three and a half years into it, he breaks this treaty. So then uh, th- that starts the Armageddon campaign, which is a, not a, thick, it's not a, uh, a, a fixed battle like uh, Waterloo or something like that. It's like World War II. It's a campaign that lasts till Christ comes back at his second advent to start the kingdom. And when Christ comes back at his second advent, as we've been studying in the book of Habakkuk and the great warrior songs, divine warrior psalm, and Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, which we're going to wrap up this Sunday, uh, we see that, uh, uh, that uh, the, the, uh, at the second advent, not only does Jesus Christ destroy Antichrist and the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist, but he also destroys the tribulational armies and he removes Satan and the fallen angels from planet Earth. He, uses, he gives the order to the elect angels and Satan and the fallen angels are in prison for a thousand years. And then during that time, there'll be no war. So we see that this is the period we're talking about, the 70th week of Daniel. And it's broken out into two, three and a half year sections. And we're going to talk tonight about the event that will take place that starts the, which actually constitutes being, I get the word out, constitutes being the breaking of the treaty, which he desecrates the temple. And there's two abominations, as I've been bringing out to you. One is the Antichrist sitting down in the rebuilt temple, in the rebuilt Ark of the Covenant, declaring himself as God, deifying himself. The other one we see in Revelation 13, where the false prophet, who I believe is definitely going to be a pope, because he's going to be a Roman, and and the Roman Catholic Church is housed in Rome, right? So what better person? And it says in Romans 13, I was showing uh, Ray, uh, we'll we'll touch on this. Uh, He comes as as a lamb, it says. So put it all together. Now, it's interesting, during the Reformation, like Calvin and Luther, they thought a pope was going to be the Antichrist. He, I think he's going to be the false prophet. And, and that, again, this we won't know exactly until we're gone who that person's going to be. So we have that satanic trinity in Revelation 13. Uh, Satan is trying to be like the father, uh, the Antichrist trying to be like Jesus, and the false prophet is trying to be like uh, the Holy Spirit. And so we see that the, the second abomination which culminates around the same time, it looks like, as the Antichrist desecrating the temple by sitting down on the Ark of the Covenant, is that the false prophet builds an image of the Antichrist and he makes it come to life and it causes the whole world to worship it. What's also interesting is that um, Antichrist is not only, he doesn't necessarily, it mentions in Revelation 13, that he's a, uh, he, he receives a, uh, he's a, an assassination attempt. He's actually assassinated. He comes back to life. It's, it's a counterfeit resurrection. So we'll, we'll talk about this in this Day of the Lord series. So this is what we'll be talking about tonight, this desecration of the temple and these abominations in particular, the Antichrist sitting down in the rebuilt Jewish temple. So look at, uh, on the board, Daniel 7.24, read from your Bibles. And we're reading from the NIV. So Daniel uh, 9.24. I said 7.24, 9.24. 
Daniel 9, 24 says, 77s are decreed for your people, and he's speaking to, to Daniel who's a Jew, and your holy city, in context that would be historically uh, Jerusalem, of course. And it says, to finish transgression, and that's the corporate transgression of the Jewish people, to put an end to sin, the corporate sin of Israel, to atone for wickedness, their wickedness, as a corporate, uh, corporate entity, and then to bring in everlasting righteousness, that's the millennial reign, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place, of course. Then it says, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, we study this verse in great detail. We see that the issuing of the decrees talks about, again, Artaxerxes, Longamanus, in 444 B.C., making a treaty to, to restore Jerusalem. Nehemiah 2 documents it. Now, there were other treaties that we pointed out by Persian rulers, but this is the only one that fits the bill that's being taught here, uh, uh, communicated here in this passage. The anointed one is actually speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And so he says there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So if you look at our chart on the board, they run contiguous with each other. So the first seven weeks are equivalent to 49 years, and that's the rebuilding of the temple, okay? So the completion of the rebuilding of the temple completes that first 49 years. But on top of it, no break in between, we have another 62 weeks equivalent to 434 years. That culminates in Christ uh, coming into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry or his tearful presentation as the Messiah, and he's rejected. That ends the uh, 69 weeks, or 483 of these prophetic years. So we're waiting for the 70th week to begin, but again, as I said before, the rapture has to take place, according to Paul's 2 Thessalonians 2, for the Antichrist to even manifest himself, and then he can make the treaty, and that starts the 70th week of Daniel, all right? So then it says, in Daniel uh, 9, uh, 26, it says, after the 62 sevens, in other words, after the 62 sevens, and they were on top of the, the seven sevens, right? So you have, to, after the, the 69th week, 483rd year, the anointed one, and that's, again, Jesus Christ, will be cut off. That speaks of him being publicly executed as a criminal. Uh, when we do Daniel, we'll go into the Hebrew of that. And then it says, and he'll have nothing. The kingdom wouldn't begin. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, history tells us that the people, okay, we know the people are doing, not the ruler, the people of the ruler, but the people are the ones who destroy the city and the temple, the sanctuary. That's the Romans. That happened in 70 AD. That was fulfilled literally, okay? And it's interesting. We'll give you a little tidbit. Josephus mentions that when the Roman soldiers were given an order by Titus, the Roman general, his father was the emperor of Vespasian. And he gave the order, do not burn the temple down. And they did it anyways, which was very shocking. But they hated the Jews so much because they were such tough, tough fighters. They disobeyed orders and set that thing on fire. And, and, and they, they pushed down, you know, the gold was coming through, it's, Josephus says, through the, the, build, you know, the stones of the building, and they pushed these things over which is quite a task. And so we see that, that, that took place, and, he, and Jesus said it would take place. Daniel says it's going to take place, and you had somebody trying to not to let it take place. Uh, Titus giving the order, and his own soldiers who were very disciplined rejected the order and, des and, and, and destroyed the temple anyways. They set it on fire. So it says the people of the ruler, and the, and the ruler there is going to be the one who makes the covenant in verse 27. 
He's the nearest antecedent, as we pointed out. So the people of the rule who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's Rome beat, uh, destroyed uh, the temple and the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. The end will come like a flood. And then he says what, that, what he means by that. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. So then it says in verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. That's seven of these years. This, it's, this, it's this 70th week. So who's the he? As we pointed out, he's the nearest antecedent, not Jesus Christ. He's the ruler that comes from the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. That's why I say he's a Roman. And don't let anybody tell you, and you got all these knuckleheads out there, and you, you heard me talk about this. You go on YouTube, just because somebody's on YouTube or Facebook doesn't mean they're legit, okay? If they're legit, you'll see from the scriptures if they're legit. Check them out. So there are people out there saying, well, when President Trump was, was the Antichrist, and back it was all the way to Bush, and he even, he even goes far as back as Kennedy, they said he was, because of the, the, the headshot, right? So they said, so they said uh, then they even said, uh, Obama, it was, a, it was the Antichrist. It's all these silly, stupid people. I said, is he a Roman? No, then shut up, will you please? As everyone is, just shut up for crying out loud. Because you get all these knuckleheads out there. But you know what? If you don't learn this stuff, and woe to the pastors don't teach their people this stuff, because then they fall victim for these knuckleheads out here who are teaching false doctrine. Okay? So one of the reasons, as we pointed out, we need to learn this stuff is to protect ourselves and others in the body of Christ from false doctrine. Because now you know that that's garbage about this, what, to say that Obama or any American president is, or Biden or Trump, is, a, is the Antichrist. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. So he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years, Jewish reckoning of time, 12 and 60 days, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And then it says something staggering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And uh, let me give you some, uh, let me give you another, I'll give you my translation, but I want to uh, bring out some uh, other translations for you of Daniel 9.27. So give you a little, uh, uh, get a good, uh, what do you call it, uh, Scholarship from different translations, get their input. So the ESV, great translation, because some of them are different here about the way they translate Daniel 9.27. So it says in the ESV, excuse me, it says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And of course, the desolator is speaking of the Antichrist. Let me give you the Net Bible's translation, which is a great translation as well, especially for their notes too. And it says in, in their translation, he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. On the wing of abominations, notice that they say, Plural abominations. Did the ESV do that? Yes. See, they have abominations. If you notice, the NIV has abominations singular. It doesn't have plural. That's not correct. It should be plural. And probably the reason why they translated it singular is because they're not. Uh, they probably don't adhere theologically from, uh, to a, uh, a person's futuristic. Um, Futurist uh, interpretation of Daniel 9.27, maybe. I'm not sure. So it says, uh, on the wing of abominations will come one who destroys until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. So let me give you my translation now of that passage. So it says in Daniel 9.27 of my translation, then he will establish a firm covenant with the leaders. 
Okay? The word Rav in the Hebrew, it's in the plural. It means great ones. So that's why I say he's the, it's the great ones is a, uh, a way of uh, describing the leadership of Israel at the time. And that means political and military-wise. Okay? So he will establish a firm covenant with the leaders, which will be one unit of seven years. However, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this unit of seven years, while between the wings, which results in abominations... He will cause desecration. Indeed, until the decreed complete destruction is poured out against the desecrators. So notice in my translation, and when we, if you are ever interested on how do I came to my translation, it's in the exegesis and exposition of this book, Daniel. And Daniel 9, 27, the whole book, is mapped out in great detail if, you're, if, you're, if you want to uh, find out where I'm getting this stuff. This did, I didn't pull this out of the top of my hat. So it comes from the original languages. So we see here that it's interesting here, and we'll bring this out tonight. It says he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of this unit of seven years, while between the wings, which, so something's going to happen between the wings, which results in abominations, plural, okay? He will cause desecration. Indeed, until the decreed complete desecration, destruction is poured out against the desecrator. So Daniel 9.27, we have Gabriel, the elect angel Gabriel. There's only two angels that we know of that we know their personal names. Uh, and they're elect angels. Michael, who's the ruler angel over Israel, protects her, even when she's uh, dispersed throughout the nations for 2,000 years as she was. And uh, there's Gabriel. Uh, Michael is the guardian of the uh, uh, angel, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. And, uh, but also Gabriel, he seems to be associated with salvation quite a bit. Uh, with the announcement of Christ's birth, seeing Mary, seeing Joseph. Uh, so he seems to be everywhere when it comes to salvation. And you could say this is as well, because this 70 weeks prophecy culminates in the national regeneration of Israel. Okay, So we see here that Michael... Uh, excuse me, the angel Gabriel's involved here, and he's responding, remember, to Paul, uh, to, not Paul, but Daniel's prayer. He was interceding for the nation of Israel. He was reading Jeremiah's prophecies, as we pointed out, at the 70 years they'd be in Babylon, and then they would return. God would bring them back, a remnant from Babylon. So he was reading this in D- Jeremiah, and he knows, hey, it's about getting to that time. So he's interceding. So he's praying for that, God's will to be taking place that he spoke to Jeremiah, but he gets much more than he bargained for. He gets, he gets the prophetic outline of Israel's history and to the history, really, of the world. So in Daniel 9.27, Gabriel informs Daniel that the coming leader, who was a little horn in Daniel chapter 7, and the Antichrist in Revelation 13, will cause the temple to enter into a state of destruction in the sense that his sinful actions will defile the temple and make it ceremonially unclean. So he will defile the temple between the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which results in abominations. And this act constitutes making oneself God. And Paul is going to reference this in 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll see it tonight. So this, again, corresponds to Paul's statements in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, that the Antichrist will take a seat in the temple of God and display himself as being God. And amazingly... He will sit between the wings of the cherubim. So this event will also take place roughly roughly simultaneously 
with the Antichrist putting a stop to the sacrificial offering in the temple, that these two events occur simultaneously, as indicated by the fact that both occur in the midway point of the 70th week. So let's, uh, let's take a, uh, go over to 2 Thessalonians. Hold your place. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. And we might just be going back to that several times. I'm not sure, but we'll see. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now, I, if you notice when I go to a passage, we, we, we've changed, returned to a passage or something, you'll notice that I like to give you the context and what's being, because when I go, you know, part of the way we interpret the Bible is you're supposed to, and it's not originating with me, is you compare scripture with scripture, and you go back to the original languages. If you don't have, the, if you don't know Hebrew and Greek or Aramaic of the Old Testament, you got these great modern English translations that are done by great scholars, and several of them I've corresponded with. They, these people are great. I mean, they, they, we got great, we're so blessed, it's ridiculous what we have. With you, the, the, you have the Word of God and those English translations. They're incredible. So you, you, you have that. You can go back, to, uh, compare scripture with scripture. And you also study the Bible in its historical context. And you also say you study it in its literary context. Because the Bible's filled with different types of literature. Poetry, like we're seeing that in uh, Habakkuk. It's a poetry, it's a, a psalm, lyrics to a song. Uh, there's history, there's historical narrative, there's apocalyptic literature, which is a lot of da Daniel 7 is like that, and Revelation is like that, 6 through 18 and 19, 20, really. And so there's different epistles where when we do First and Second Thessalonians, those are epistles. We did Second and Third John. Jude, those are epistles. There are certain genre uh, that uh, that uh, the Bible has a literature. So there's a lot of types of literature, and you, and you really need to know that stuff when you interpret. If you don't, you can make some serious blunders. So Second Thessalonians, in context, Paul is addressing a problem. There's three big problems um, he's he's dealing with. Um, he, he's one in particular we're going to look at here is that there was somebody going into Thessalonica, and remember he had a leak because of persecution. That's why he, that's prompted him to send Timothy, and that Timothy, Timothy came back, said that they're still staying faithful, and that's why he wrote First Thessalonians. And then Second Thessalonians is, is another letter that he's writing in response to their problems that he found out from Ty, uh, Timothy that they were having. One of which was somebody who goes into Thessalonica saying that the day of the Lord, the subject that we're studying, had already begun. And he's talking about the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. How do we know that? From the contents of the chapter, we can tell that. So he's saying it hasn't begun and it can't begin because of certain things. And he gives them that. He, in fact, he taught them this and so he's reminding them. So along the way, he's going to talk, talk about Antichrist and his actions during the 70th week of Daniel that we're talking about that results in the desecration of the temple which we're talking about in Daniel 9.27. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Now regarding the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to be with him, that's the rapture there, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to not be easily shaken from your composure or disturbed by any kind of spirit or message or letter allegedly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not arrive until the rebellion comes and uh, quickly, by way of review, when we do Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three, 
we'll go this in great detail, but there's three major interpretations for this word, re- the rebellion. In the Greek text, it's apostasia. And this word is, it, trans- it means rebellion, okay? Now, some people, and I told you in the past, I, I, I've adhered to these previous two interpretations. I don't anymore. But there's, some people say that this is a picture of the rapture. It's talking about the rapture. No, it's not, okay? At, at, at departure, it doesn't have that meaning at all. Uh, it, a re- it means rebellion, the word. And then there's the, the closest thing is the apostasy of the church at the end of the church age, great apostasy. But the context doesn't support that interpretation. Now, again, I say this with all respect because men I respect uh, adhere to those, one of those two, and I used to as well. The context is telling us, it's talking about the rebellion that Antichrist is going to lead the human race in, in, into uh, against Jesus Christ. So it says the rebellion, and Paul always defines what he means by his terms. This is ambiguous. What does he mean by that? Well, he's going to tell you. So pay attention to the context again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not arrive until the rebellion comes. And here's what he means by it. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and as a result, he takes his seat in God's temple. So that means it's going to be rebuilt, displaying himself as God. Let me give you my translation of those verse, uh, verses uh, uh, 3 and 4. Do not let anyone deceive any of you in any way, for if the rebellion does not take place first, namely the unique person characterized by a distinguishable lawlessness has been revealed, that is the unique son characterized by a distinguishable destruction, then the Lord's day is absolutely not taking place. Then he says in verse 4, he says, the one who for his own benefit opposes, yes, even for his own benefit exalts himself against each and every so-called God or object of worship. Consequently, he himself sits down inside the one and only God's temple in order to present himself as God. So this is what Paul's talking about that Daniel talks about. And as we'll see, the Lord talks about as well. So you're going to compare all these scriptures so you can get a full picture of what's going to take place. So you can go back now to Daniel 9.27. Please. So in the previous statement in Daniel 9.27, as we read, Gabriel informed Daniel that the coming leader, the Antichrist, will put a stop to the Levitical sacrifices in the middle of the 70th week. That will be reinstituted. Now, we see here that we know that on the wing of abomination, the Antichrist will cause the desecration of the temple in the middle of the 70th week, as well as indicated by the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ statement in Matthew 24, 15 through 21. The Lord taught that the generation living during the 70th week, that when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, there's one standing and there's one sitting. Paul just talked about the one sitting. Daniel 9, 27 is talking about both. And Matthew is talking about the one standing. Revelation 13 talks about the one standing. It's the image of the Antichrist, okay? I don't know if he's going to use AI. I don't think he needs to. Satan's going to be doing all kinds of, be allowed to make to do tremendous miracles. So to have him put an image and get life into it, the devil's going to be able to do that. We don't know the extent of his power yet. Because he's got a lot of stuff in his back pocket he hasn't shown us. And we won't be here to see. So the Lord taught the generation living during the 70th week that when they see the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, they must flee to the mountains. 
because there'll be great tribulation, which has never occurred up to that point in history. So the Jews right now, where we're at, are currently pouring into Jerusalem, uh, into Israel. Okay, they're coming in all the time from all around the world, Russia, all the places, and so that's uh, that's that's that was prophesied. Okay, that they would come back to the land. Okay, but what we see is that once they're that once we're gone and Antichrist makes this treaty and he breaks this covenant that he makes with Israel, this treaty, then we see that they get one more dispersion of the Jewish people. And that means they're going to have to flee all around the world. And other passages of scripture like Revelation talk about this, Old Testament does too. And so they're going to be dispersed throughout the world. There's going to be a small pocket of freedom fighters. They'll be sitting and staying in the city and fighting it out till the very end, till Christ comes back. But they're a small percentage. And by the way, a lot of the Jewish people will be killed. Uh, there's a passage where I was talking, we were, I think it was Rex we were talking before, a lot of P- Jews will be killed during that time. So it'll definitely be, if you read Revelation chapter 7 and 12, uh, 14, there's 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, okay? So that's, the, 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 the Jewish people would be significantly uh, decimated by uh, the, the actions of the Antichrist. But the remnant will survive. So we see here that the abomination of desolation marks the last three and a half years of the 70th week. So therefore, just as the stopping of the sacrifices in the temple will take place in the middle of this 70th week, so the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place will take place in the middle of the 70th week. So the Lord taught that this event marks the beginning of the great tribulation, which takes place between the last three and a half years of the 70th week. And I'm going to show you that passage again. We've been going to it, Matthew 24. But before I do, I want to look at some other things in Daniel 9.27 before we move on. So look at Daniel 9.27 uh, in your Bibles and also look at it in my translation as well. So if you look at the, the NIV, it says, He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So I want to look at this the wing of the temple, and set up an abomination. Uh, the ESV, uh, they say, on the wing of abominations. Note the plural. As shall, and so we have that, and then we have the Net Bible, and I'll give you their translation again. On the wing of abominations will come one who des- uh, destroys. And then with me, I have in my translation, uh, however, he will cause the sacrificial offering to stop in the middle of, of the unit of seven years, while between the wings which results in abominations, he will cause desecration. So note, mine's slightly different, which I'll explain. So between the wings is actually in the emphatic position of this temporal clause, meaning it's at the front of the statement, okay? That's for emphasis. We call that fronting in, in biblical literature. So he's, the, this phrase, between the wings, is in the emphatic position of this temporal clause, and it's emphasizing the terrible actions of the Antichrist and sitting on the mercy seat between the cherubim. So think about it. What took place on the mercy seat and the cherubim? Wasn't Moses talking to the Lord, okay, who was between the wings of the cherubim, invisibly, you know, and he's talking to Moses. If you read Exodus in the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, well, he's aping, he's aping God there, okay, talking to uh, Moses, okay? So it's 
It's outrageous that he's doing this, okay? So this prepositional phrase refers to the location in which the Antichrist will sit and display himself as being God. Now, the word wings are a reference to the wings of the cherubim, uh, overshadowing the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So I don't, I don't want to fiddle to find out the, uh, show you a picture of it, but when we do Exodus, I'll show you. But basically, the Ark of the Covenant, it was, uh, it was made of acacia wood, which is a picture of the humanity of Christ, overlaid with gold, picture of the deity of Christ, you had these cherubim, the wings of the cherubim, one representing the righteousness and the justice of God, and there was a mercy seat, okay? And they would, every day, of the, every year, the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would go into the, into the, uh, the, um, and the uh, Holy of Holies, and he would go in there, and he would sprinkle blood of the animal on the sacrifice, Levitical sacrifice, it was the atonement lamb, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That's a picture of the death of the Christ and the righteousness and justice of God, which are represented by the two cherubim overlooking the, 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 the mercy seat. It's a picture of propitiation. So when Christ suffered the wrath of God on the cross with his substitutionary spiritual and physical death on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he suffered the crucifixion and uh, then physical death. The father was said to be satisfied with his son's suffering. He suffered the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the law that we couldn't live. He did it for us. So he's our substitute. So that's why it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, slave or female, male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a lesbian, if you're a homosexual, or you're a Pharisee, or you're a, a, a pedophile, or whatever, not to justify any of those uh, uh, sins, right? It doesn't matter who you are. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're saved, we call it. You're delivered from eternal condemnation, Satan and his cosmic system. You're going to live with God forever, your eternal life. You, you and I don't merit it. We don't earn it or deserve it. It's because of the merits of the object of our faith that what he did on the cross for us that propitiated the Father is the reason why he's saving us. That's called grace. We don't earn it or deserve it. It flows from his attribute of his love. And he loves us when we were his enemies. Nobody sends their one and only son to die for their enemies. Name me one person. That's why... Some, tape, some people today, are it's, it's Valentine's Day. Some people are sitting there today depressed as the Son of God. And I guarantee there's some people jumping off bridges today because they don't have somebody to love and nobody send them flowers. And I get that, okay? I'm single and I'm 62. But I'll tell you this, nobody loves you like Jesus does. Nobody loves you like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nobody ever could. Nobody measures up. And I tell you what, one day, if you're, if you're single, you got a really great advantage because you can find out if that's for sure the case. Because a lot of times, a lot of us get married right out of college, or like my parents, they were married, like came out of high school, got, boom, they're married at 20 and 21. I mean, I'm in, I met people who were married at 16 and 17 in Iowa. You know, that's a little crazy out there. But you know, they, they, they didn't waste any time, right? So they never got to be, they went from their mother and their father right into their husband and their wife. So like my father, he went from my, his mother who just, and his grandmother who spoiled him like a son of a guy he's the only boy and then he gets my wife uh, his wife my mother and she spoiled the living daylights out of him while he was doing his career and everything like most guys right and now he's the last seven eight years have been great for him because he's had to take care of her which has been the greatest thing for him so he knows he knows what it was like you know to cook and all that stuff and the, all that stuff he, she had to do but he, of course she raised all of us and while he was working and that's not a knock on him but it's just the way it is so we see that that uh, the father, that, that, that cherubim, okay, is the Antichrist is going to rebuild this temple and he's probably going to help him do it. 
and he's gonna, they have the plans in the book of Exodus to make this stuff, okay? If you read the Exodus, there's the, the oh, we'll do this when we do Exodus, the, 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 how to make the Ark of the Covenant, what we're supposed to do, what are the dimensions? It's all going to be done. They already have it. It doesn't matter if it's in Ethiopia. It doesn't really matter. It's stupid. And by the way, in the Millennial Temple, there's going to be no Ark of the Covenant because it's a picture of Jesus and you're going to have Jesus there in this temple, literally bodily. So what do you need the Ark of the Covenant for? So we see that the wings are a reference here in Daniel 9.27 to the wings of the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So this prepositional phrase between the wings and Daniel 9.27 coupled with Paul's statement that we just read in 2 Thessalonians suggests that the Antichrist will sit on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant because the divine presence in the Old Testament was said to be seated on the mercy seat between the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. So this act would certainly constitute an abomination in the judgment of God. See, people don't understand about the devil things. You know, if you, those of you who know doctrine and you like the time, you know what I'm going to say, a lot of it. Uh, but most, a lot of Christians don't really, under, they think of the devil and they think of evil uh, in, in very simple terms, simplistic terms. You know, they think of the, you know, what's that, uh, the, the exorcist. And, you know, you know, turning heads around, her spinning her head around, throwing up all over everybody. And, you know, you know there, are, there is demon possession. In fact, um, you probably could see a couple of people walking around Huntsville that are probably demon-possessed for all you know. You don't know. But, uh, but one thing about demon possession is, and you see this in African nations, and if you ever talk to people who are, uh, 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 what do you call it, evangelists, they go across other nations, you know, Pakistan, you see more of that because they have, they, the person who's demon-possessed, they have like supernatural strength. It's like ridiculous strength. That's why you read, with, you know, Paul, they, somebody was trying to cast out demons and they did it in, in Jesus' name and Paul's name. And they go, we know Paul, but who are you guys? And he just, the sons of Skeevers, and he just tore, they just, one guy just tore all these guys apart. And they were being out of the house naked. I mean, what kind of strength is that? So you know somebody is demon-possessed. has got that tremendous supernatural, uh, supernatural power. But, uh, but let me tell you something. Don't ever have to worry about demon possession because who's in you is greater than he that's in that person. Because you have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in you. So if you ever run into somebody, they probably, if you, they're demon-possessed people that see you, uh, they probably run like crazy. Uh-oh, that's, a, that's one of those, that's one of that, that, his, his kids, get out of here. They don't want to be around you, okay? They might terrorize you and try to bother you other ways, but they can't, they can't possess you because the Trinity possesses you. <laughs> so they ain't coming in there into us. So, but the thing with Satan, what he's trying to do, he's trying to have a rival kingdom with God. That's what he's trying to do. And that's why I say that the satanic trinity is presented to us in Revelation 13. The father, who's the father? Satan's trying to be like the father. The antichrist is going to be trying to be like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, the prophet's trying to imitate him. Because the Holy Spirit promotes the worship of Jesus Christ and the father, Right? What do you think the prophet, uh, the false prophet's going to be doing? Promoting the worship of the Antichrist with one of these abominations and thus ultimately the devil. So the devil wants to do it his way, a different way. He wants an alternative lifestyle for following God. So Satan is the author of the alternative lifestyle. I want to do it different than God. I want to have my own kingdom. But God says he can't do that. I'll let you, I'll permit you to do it. God's treating Satan in grace, by the way, just like he did us. I'm letting you, I'll let you do this because I'm going to prove to my creatures, you and all my more rational creatures, men and angels, 
that you can't live independently of me and be successful. I make the rules. I run the house. I built it. You got my hair, air, my water, my planet, uh, and I gave you a body. I gave you a volition, a free will. You, I, you owe everything to me. So God's very generous and very gracious, and he's trying to teach his creatures, you and I, and angels, that this is what it has to be. That's why God had, when he created volition for men and angels, he had to let them make their decisions against him. He didn't want robots. He wanted people to love him willingly. And so the great thing about God is we could live our lives totally in rejection of him, and then one day the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us, oh, I am a say I do need Jesus. See, what God tries to do is he brings in whatever circumstances it takes people to see our need for Jesus. It happened to me. It's called crisis evangelism. I, uh, when I was 19, boom. And I know a lot of people who got saved without even having to go through that. They just, they can't remember when they got saved. I just get saved. I don't remember. I mean, I've known many people like that. So they feel kind of left out. No, you don't. That's good for you. But I'll tell you one thing. If you, if, you, if you make a mess of your life and then you go get saved and you look back at it now, you go, oh, gosh. You really appreciate God and say, man, you are really, what a great God of love. How could I not love anybody else but you? You're my Valentine God. <laughs> there it is. You're my Valentine Jesus. Nobody has ever done anything like that. I never had a girlfriend that did that for me. I don't do all that stuff. No, you did, the Father. So, very important. So, now, the, the keep going here. Abominations. It's in the plural, as I said before. It speaks of two events. The first is the Antichrist taking a seat in the temple, okay, and sitting on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim while displaying himself as being God. Now, the second is mentioned in Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15, and by the Lord, and Matthew 24, as we'll say. And it teaches that the false prophet will set up an image of the Antichrist and will compel the whole world to worship. So this temporal clause in Daniel 9.27 indicates that by sitting on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim will result in these two abominations. Okay? In other words, these two abominations will be the result of Antichrist sitting on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. So by sitting on the cherub- between the cherubim, he will declare himself as God, which results in another abomination, namely the false prophet, he will erect an image of the Antichrist and demand the world to worship this image. So in other words, one leads to the other. But the first, namely sitting down in the mercy seat between the chairman declaring himself to be God will result in the erection of the image of himself. So this first abomination produces destruction since it results in God's judgment. So well, you don't have to hold your place. Go to Revelation 13 real quick. How are we doing for time here? Look at Revelation 13. <clears throat> yeah. Revelation 13, 1. Revelation 13, 1. <clears throat> now, there's two beasts in this chapter. The first beast, in the first, was it, ten verses, that's the Antichrist. The second beast is the false prophet. So they're described as two beasts. Now, that's, you know, God calls them beasts because, like the nations in Daniel 7, you know, at Babylon, Medo-Persia, Alexander's Greece, and Rome, he depicts them as beasts, wild animals, because that's how God looks at unregenerate people that are like these two, the false prophet and the Antichrist. 
They're beasts. They're animals. So Revelation 13, 1. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. And on its horns were ten diadem crowns. And on its head, a bla- head's blasphemous name. Now the beast that I saw was like a leopard, but its feet were like a beer's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon, that's Satan, gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority to rule. So he's given the power. It doesn't say he indwells him. It never says he's indwelt by the devil. It just says he's got the power given to him. Okay? Remember, he's trying to ape this trinity. That's what he's doing. One of the beast's heads appeared to have been killed. But the lethal wound would have been healed. And the whole world followed the beast in amazement. Uh, I'm reading, what am I? I'm reading from your, uh, the Net Bible. Sorry about that. Let me read from the, <laughs> let me read from the, the RFs, uh, the, what do you call it? The uh, NIV. So, verse 1, again, sorry about that. And the dragon stood on the shore, sorry, right, on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion, and the dragon. Gave the beast his power and his throne and his authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast. And asked, who is like the beast who can make war against him? The beast, was, and the reason why is because he was dead and he came back to life. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Sound like Daniel 7? Yep. And exercised his authority for 42 months times, time, and a half time in Daniel chapter 7. It's called 1260 days in another passage. So 42 months, and he opened him, and that's three and a half years of the last three and a half years of the 70th week. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, so he's speaking, he's a boastful person, and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints, to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, and a captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints who live during that time because we're not here. Okay, in Revelation 6 to 18, the church is never mentioned. It's all about Israel. Go look for it. We come back in Revelation 19 with Jesus. There's a wedding with the bride of Christ. Bada bing, bada boom, here we come, right? Verse 11 now. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, okay? Another beast, another of a different type. He's the false prophet here. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. That's why I say I think he's going to be one because he's going to, the Antichrist is a Roman, and the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, is in Rome, and he has horns like a lamb. Does not the Pope come off like a lamb, meek as a lamb? There you go. But he spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So he survives an assassination. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. But, and then it says, because of the signs... He was, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, the Antichrist, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, 
the image. That's the other abomination, okay? So that it could speak and cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Now you'll be saying, he's going to be using AI. I love people when they say, the maybe he's not going to need it, you know. He's going to have the power to do stuff like this, okay? So, you know, maybe it'll be like a ventriloquist, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like maybe he, could, maybe he could do something like that. I don't know. I'm just, but, you know, he could do, he, Satan's going to have the power to do such things. So he doesn't need AI. All right, let's go. Now that we took a look at that passage, go now to Matthew 24, verse 1. Matthew 24.1. The Great Olivet Discourse. And when I, if one of these days I'm going to do a gospel, and when I do, this will be the first one I do, is Matthew. Matthew's incredible. Not that they aren't all incredible, but this one I really feel particularly led to do first. Matthew 24, verse 1. Now, remember, I said this before, I, I hear people quoting from this passage when it comes to the rapture. The rapture ain't in this at all. You can look high and, high and low. It's not even there. Don't even try to use it for the rapture. Reason why? Because nobody knew about it of Jesus' disciples until the upper room. The only time he talked about the church at once he did. Matthew 16. Upon this rock I will build my church. After that, he doesn't even mention it. He doesn't start talking about the church in great detail to John 13 through 17, those chapters the upper room discourse. That's when he starts talking about the church. It was not known to Old Testament saints. And these guys, his disciples, who are believers and Jewish, they're asking him about something that they were all waiting for, including Judas Iscariot, which was the kingdom on earth. They want to get rid of the Romans and bring in the kingdom, right? Which was predicted in Daniel, right? In these other passages. So that's why they, when they ask him these questions, it's related to him starting the kingdom on earth. That's the whole prophetic expectation of the Jews today. Orthodox Jews, okay? So Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to call to him, to call to his attention to its building. Remember we did Haggai, Zerubbabel's temple? Well, Herod comes along and he built it up even more. Massive complex. And it was still building by the time Jesus shows up, okay? And then he says in verse 2, because they're all impressed by this stuff, he says, do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that happened in June of 70 AD with the Romans. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? See what the questions they're asking? They're asking about something that had nothing to do with the church age. They never knew about the church yet. When will this happen? When will be the sign of your coming? And they don't know anybody about the rapture. It's the second advent they're looking for. That's talked about in Zechariah, their scriptures, Zechariah 12, right? And 14, and the coming of the end of the age. Jesus answered, now he's going to tell him some things. Watch out that no one deceives you. Now he's going to talk about the signs that are leading up to his second advent. There's no signs preceding the rapture. Nowhere. It's just going to show up when it shows that when the Lord says it's time, it's going to happen. Because God wants us to live with a sense of urgency. Because he could come back at any moment. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. 
Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached and the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Okay? Most people don't realize it during the tribulation period, you know, with the seven seal trumpet and bull judgments, there'll even be angels proclaiming the gospel from heaven. <laughs> Read Revelation. So you get this 12,000, 144,000 Jews, not the Jehovah's Witnesses, Revelation 7 to 14, they're giving the gospel. Many Gentiles get saved. Of course, you lose your head for doing that. Antichrist will chop off your head, right? So, but this gospel is going to be proclaimed. So many people get saved from the fire of eternal condemnation. So then, he's following, Jesus is following the prophetic outline of Daniel. Because look what he says then. Verse 15. So when you see standing, Revelation 13, not the one sitting that Paul talked about, there's two abominations, Daniel 9.27, in the plural. One standing, one sitting, Antichrist the one sitting, and the, and the abomination, the image of him, set up by the false prophet, is the other one, standing. So Jesus says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination, and he puts it singular because he's talking about this particular abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, and he's talking about Daniel 9.27, let the reader understand. Now, a couple of things. And I'll give you, I need to go over a couple of things in the Greek so you get the idea here. The phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, it's, uh, we have, uh, the belguma is the word for abomination. And then we have the word for that, that's translated, that causes desolation. That's the word eremosis, eremosis. And that word is, means desolation, or that which causes desolation. Now, what's interesting here. With eremosis, it functions as a genitive of product in the Greek grammar, meaning that it's the product of the noun, bedelguma, abomination, indicating that this abomination produces the desolation. You follow me? Very important that we see that. So this word eremosis functions as a genitive product, meaning that it's the product of the noun, bedelguma, abomination, indicating that this abomination produces desolation. So what's going on here? is this echoes, the Greek grammar of Matthew 24, 15, echoes Daniel 9, 27's Hebrew. Since Gabriel informs Daniel that the Antichrist will cause desolation or destruction by sitting on the mercy seat between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, people, Gabriel's telling Daniel that this abomination of sitting on the mercy seat and thus displaying himself as God will produce destruction because it will result in God's judgment upon the Antichrist and those who worship his image on the earth. Now, preterists, uh, they interpret the abomination of desolation, as they do most prophetic events, and Daniel and the Olivet Discourse, as having its ultimate fulfillment in the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. So a preterist, some of you might not know what that is, and I got a couple of definitions for you. And, uh, but basically, I can find it here. Basically, a preterist, they believe that the events of Revelation and all of the discourse of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the first century. But as we'll see, that can't, that can't possibly be the case. I've been bringing this out as we go through Daniel and Matthew 24 and pointing out specific things that this can't take place. So 
Preterism is basically a method of interpreting, this is what, what uh, thing I got here, uh, dictionary of theological terms. It says, um, the definition is they say it's a method of interpreting the book, pre- uh, preterism. It's a method of interpreting the book of Revelation as a description of conditions in the first century. Preterists see the book as a protest in apocalyptic terms against the tyranny of imperial Rome, not as a prophecy of end time conditions and events. And then uh, also, I think who's the guy who wrote this? I'll, I'll tell you this. In the, uh, it's Bibliotheca Sacra, put up by Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, let's see, they, yeah, Lawrence de Brune, he's the one who wrote this. I want to give him credit. So he says the following thing. Preterism is a eschatological system that teaches that most moderate or partial preterism, if not all, extreme or plenary preterism, of Jesus' predictions in the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled at the time of Jerusalem's desolation and the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. Assuming that a generation is 30 or 40 years in length, preterists contend that either in whole or in part, the events Jesus predicted occurred within the lifetime of those who were Jesus' contemporaries. That's why he says within this generation, right? One preterist notes, not only was something significant about to happen, it was to happen in their lifetime, end of quote. So that gives you an idea what preterism is. So in other words, to make it simple, even simpler, they think a lot of the revelation in Matthew 24, what we were studying now, was fulfilled in the first century. Okay? So preterists interpret the abomination of desolation uh, as they do most prophetic events in Daniel and the Olivet Discourse as having its ultimate fulfillment uh, in, the, in the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. However, history as demonstrated, this is not the case. History does not correspond to their interpretation of Revelation or the Olivet Discourse. First of all, let me give you some examples. First of all, none of the actions of the Roman officials during the first revolt against Rome by the Jews in 70 AD match the details given to us by the scriptures in which this phrase, abomination of desolation, occurs. And uh, also, we see that the entrance of the Roman general Titus took place only after the temple was already in flames and had already been ruined and after the Jewish sacrifices had ceased. Now, we see that this is, indic- is, this is critical, people, because to see, it's critical to see this because the abomination that causes desolation, which Gabriel informs Daniel about, and to which the Lord Jesus Christ alludes in Matthew 24, 15, speaks only of the cessation of sacrifice in the temple, not its destruction. Interestingly, Daniel's 70th week, and especially its signal event, the abomination that causes desolation, seems to influence the literary structure of the Lord's Olivet Discourse and the Synoptic Gospels and the judgment section of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So the Lord Jesus Christ's interpretation of the order of the events of the 70th week in the context of prophetic history appears to confirm an eschatological interpretation of Daniel 9.27. In other words, the preterists are wrong. It's still future. Nothing corresponds to history. What Daniel's teaching us in Daniel 9.27 doesn't correspond to history. The preterists are wrong in their interpretation. So, as we come to the end of this study, in Matthew chapter 24, 7-14, it is predicted that persecution, suffering, and wars would continue to the end of the age, climaxing in a time of great tribulation, unparalleled in history to that point, and as it says in verses 21 and 22. He only makes a reference to Daniel 9.27 
after those, these events with regards to the pivotal event of the tribulation, the desolating abomination or the abomination that causes desolation. So therefore, if the 70 weeks were to run sequentially without an interruption, then why does the Lord place this intervening period before the fulfillment of the events of the 70th week? So Matthew reveals that the Lord's prediction of the future was to answer his disciples' questions concerning the second advent and the end of the age. We just saw that. He explains why his, his coming is necessary and when it will occur. If we listen to Matthew, we can see that the events described in this period prior to the Messianic event, uh, advent could not have been fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem for the simple reason that these events usher in and terminate with the coming of the Messiah. So Gabriel, as we close completes his communication of the prophecy of the 70 units of seven weeks or 70, uh, 70 weeks prophecy, 490 prophetic years, by informing Daniel that the coming leader, the little horn, the beast, the Antichrist, in other words, will continue to desecrate the temple until a decreed, complete destruction has been poured out against him. Notice it decreed. The father knows this in eternity past what this guy was going to do. And he figured it into his plan. I always love this about God. I love the divine decree. One of the great things that Bob Thiem ever wrote was in the back of Integrity of God. It was called The Divine Decrees. Man, read that. Man, I memorized that thing. It was one of my questions in my, uh, my uh, ordination. And uh, so it, it, the divine decree is this. It happened in eternity past. So God has his sovereign will, right? So he wants to create more rational creatures with volition, human beings and angels. So he, he knows what decisions we're going to make, both the actual and the possible. Uh, he knows the good decisions, the bad decisions, and he figures them all into his plan. And he also figures his will into the plan. And in the divine decree, the sovereign will of God coexists with the free will of human beings and angels. So in other words, when Adam fell, or Satan fell, God didn't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I wasn't ready for this. Okay? You know, he wasn't sandbag. You couldn't sandbag God. Okay, oh gee. Adam, what did you do? If I crying out loud, what am I going to do? I got I to run around here and find a savior. You know, it wasn't like that, okay? God was not taken by surprise by anything. So he's not shocked by our sins or anything that we do or we're going to do in the future. He wasn't shocked by the cru crucifixion. In fact, in the divine decree, God put it in there. According to his foreknowledge, they crucified Jesus. Pilate and all those guys and the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus, guess what? The father knew that and it was a part of his plan. In fact, he uses their evil against evil. God uses evil to destroy itself. That's the divine decree, eternity past. So I like it is anytime anything crazy happens in my life, I go, well, it was decreed by God, and uh, I can only control one thing, my decisions. I can't control everything else. God's in control. He handles the world pretty good. I think I'll let God do, I finally learned, I try to learn. I'm, I'm working on it, I'm but I'm pretty much, yeah, God, you go do it. <laughs> I'm not going to try to tell God how to do things. <laughs> Because I, I would mess it up, God. I know that. I, you know, you always think, oh, if only this, if I only had this and all that. You know, like, I look back now, like, not being, because it's Valentine's Day, right? Man, imagine if I ever did get married when I was, like, when I, that, that Lebanese girl I dated for 20 years, whatever, 10 years. And I've got married at 30. Oh, my gosh. And I would have kids, and I'd probably have grandchildren now. You know what? I look back now. Not that she was a bad girl, but I was like, stop laughing over there, will you? She was, she was not a believer, okay? So that's why I didn't marry her. So I was like, whoosh, 
glad I did because look at all the stuff I, did, I was able to do in the last, you know, 30 something years. Like Pastor Jim Ricardo, I go to Dane with, he says, yeah, well, I'm taking care of my the grandchildren, changing diapers or something, and doing this and the other with my kids. You're, what are you doing? I said, yeah, when you're, when you're making love to your wife, guess what I'm doing? I'm praying her in the word of God. Ha, ha, ha. And he laughs, you know, it's like, it's like, it's true though. So it's, you know, people say, oh, I wish I should. No, I'm glad God did it the way he did. You know, and, but and, but the way it, that so don't try to get God to do, let God do run your life because He's in control. If He can control the history and world events like this, we're gonna be we're studying about. I think He can handle our own personal problems in our life. Let Him run your life. Just do what you're supposed to do, and He'll work it all out, and it'll become out better than you ever dreamed. In Huntsville, me being in Huntsville is one of those one of those things. If is uh, uh, a uh, what do you call it? living? I'm living proof, and this whole thing being being in Huntsville is living proof that God knows what He's doing. So I was thankful He let it do it. So well, we ran out of time. I could keep going, as you, you, know, you probably know I'm long winded. So, anyways, I'll let you get get you out of here. And I'll close in prayer, and then I'll sing you a song, a Valentine's Day song. Okay, and you're laughing already. So, oh, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? Well, you'll see. It's called the love of my life. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray, we pray the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us, and we just thank you for everyone here, and I just pray that this is a, a great blessing to your people and give them confidence that you have the world under your control and uh, you're sovereign over circumstances and you can handle the nations and you can handle our personal problems and our lives and uh, just help us to rest in your word and your promises and your love. And we just thank you for the great love you demonstrated to us 2,000 years ago at Calvary, when you sent your son to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in our place, and also at our justification, raising us up and seating us with your son, Jesus Christ, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Thank you and praise you, Lord, for another day and a forgiveness of sins and a study of this great subject of the day of the Lord. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I knew I shouldn't drink that coffee. It's right out the back of my throat. I was like, what the heck's going on here? I was like, fine all day. I had some coffee and then I had the cold. Stupid. Anyways.